0: To join SelfWealth now, use the link in your podcast player or head to selfwealth.com.au and use the coupon code RASK during sign-up. Hey there, here's a quick note. This podcast contains general financial advice only. That means it's not specific to you, your needs, goals, or objectives. So don't act on the information until you've spoken with your financial advisor. You'll find our full disclosure, disclaimer, and link to our financial services guide in the show notes.
1: Hi there, welcome to the first half of my interview of John Garrett of MA Financial Group. In this opening half, we talk about his family history, his stellar career spanning across nearly 25 years, where he provides an overview of his role, as well as lessons from the Asian financial crisis, tech bubble and the global financial crisis. John also provides great insights into his role in hedge fund advisory, where he built live model portfolios for institutional clients. He then dives into the investing philosophy of the funds he is running, and we get a preview of John's lessons from the great investors. For the full episode, head to the Rask Australia YouTube channel. I have a a very special guest today, and it's someone who had a profound impact on my last guest, Ben Rundle. He is currently a portfolio manager uh, at MA Financial Group and runs the Masters Invest website on the side. He is an avid reader and is generous enough to share all his lessons and resources on his website. We're going to talk about lessons from the great investors, building mental models from reading, and the importance of psychology. Without further ado, welcome John Garrett. How are you going?
2: I'm great. Thanks, Raymond. Thanks for uh, thanks for the introduction, and um, uh, it's a pleasure to uh, join you on the uh, on the call today.
1: Uh, thank you for coming on. It's an absolute honour. So before we do get started, I want to get an understanding of how you felt when you heard Ben Rundle say you were the most influential person in his investing career.
2: To be honest, I was pretty blown away. Uh, I was humbled by his kind um, kind comments. Um, you know, I was fortunate to work with Ben um, some years ago when I was on the equities desk at Molus um, uh, Australia. Mm. And, um, you know, we worked together you know, kind of talking to clients and selling ideas to them. And, um, you, know, he, he's, you know, he's, you know, he's got a lot of integrity. He's a really great guy. He himself possesses many of the traits of, you know, the the great investors. He's continuously learning. He's, you know, kind of open-minded. And, you know, since the time it's, um, that I worked with him at Molus Australia, he then moved on and went to the buy site where he worked at Naos. And obviously now he started his own fund, Habra, which has had a great start. You know, in the in the year or so that he's been running it, so you know, it, it's always great to you know to to be able to have an ability on to to kind of influence people in terms of um, you know their understanding of markets, and um, you know, it's a it's a pleasure to see someone uh, you know a good guy to um, you know ha- have a successful career, and I think he's you know he's still very early in the in his career, and I think if we look back in ten or fifteen years' time, it's going to be hugely successful. So yeah, I was uh, I was humbled by his feedback
1: it's always great to hear these stories um, i think yeah people uh, mentors play a very important role in um, everyone's lives so you definitely uh, fulfill that role for him um so i'd like to dive into your personal background um i noticed on your website which i do read every now and then and um, it's filled with a wealth of knowledge mastersinvest.com and there's a very interesting section um about your um i guess your bloodline showing photos of your um your father and your great grandfather and they were in the stock market space as well did that kind of had a influential impact on you growing up
2: well c- certainly in terms of um in terms of my career path it did you know as, as you said my um, my grandfather was a um, he, he was actually a principal trader in the uk and he ended up kind of just working for himself unfortunately um you know he passed away when um, when my father was younger so I never had the opportunity to meet him and then uh, my father came out to australia and did a whole heap of different things and ended up being a stockbroker so but I, I wouldn't say it was one of those kind of you know early beginnings where you know you sit around the table and talk about um, stocks every day he didn't really talk that much about the markets but um you know he certainly said when i was um you know in my teens he, he kind of used to tell me that if you want to be where it's at you either want to choose um you know, the stock market or, or the real estate market. And I think um, for me, uh, you know, being a little bit rebellious, I probably decided to take the alternative path and study real estate. And um, it wasn't really until my second year studying real estate that we kind of got involved in finance and corporate finance. And I just found it endlessly fascinating. And I think from that point on, uh, you know, I certainly used to talk a lot to my father about, you know, about the markets and, you know, what was going on in the markets um, and, you know, I kind of had the opportunity, I suppose, when I uh, you know, moved from Adelaide to work at UBS in Sydney to kind of put real estate and finance together. You know, my learnings in real estate, I studied at the Securities Institute, I did a graduate diploma in investment and finance. And so, yeah, I think it, it, I think it had some influence um, on me. And, um, you know, I just remember some of the things my dad used to talk about when he talked about companies, he, he, he liked businesses that didn't spend much on, you know, much on their annual report, and were pretty frugal, and you know, some of these things that, um, you know, to this day, are you know, things that, um, you know, when we're looking at, um, looking at businesses, uh, yeah. So I think that it had, you know, it certainly had some impact uh, on my upbringing and my interest in the markets. That's really
1: great to hear. Um, so if we move forward a little bit, so from nineteen ninety six to two thousand five, um, in your first decade of your career. Um, as you said, you spent a lot of your time dealing in the real estate investment trust uh, space at UBS Investment Bank. But also at that point in time, you experienced the Asian financial crisis and also the tech bubble. How was that?
2: Well, I think the more time you spend in markets, you, you, know, you kind of get to, to see that you know, the unexpected certainly happens and you know, crazy things can happen with, uh, with prices. So I remember I... I was working on the, um, on the dealing desk at UBS and, um, you know, you'd, you'd go out for a meeting when the Asia crisis was on and um, the Asian markets had, you know, opened up and had gapped down significantly. And, you know, all the stocks that you were buying before you went, you know, went for your meeting and came back were 5% lower. So, uh, you know, that was, a, that was certainly an interesting time in terms of the volatility in markets. To the other extreme was was the tech boom when, you know, you, you just saw these businesses that were trading at, uh, you know, kind of ridiculous multiples and, you know, it was just one-way traffic. You know, I remember, um, you know, we'd be looking at these stocks and if anything had a .dot .com behind its name, it was probably, you know, trading at at least a dollar. Um, and I remember, you know, people would recommend a stock and you'd look at it and it'd be at 50 cents and they'd say, oh, these guys are a mining stock but they're getting into tech you'd sit there and say, well, why is the stock only 50 cents? You know, anything that was related to tech should be, you know, at least a dollar, $2. So it was, it was unbelievable. Uh, You know, it was unbelievable times, but it also unwound uh, ridiculously fast as well. So, you know, that was a good experience. I mean, both of those were, were the extremes of fear and greed in markets. And, um, you know, my view is that human nature doesn't change. And, you know, if you look through history and I'm sure if we go, you know, into the future, we're going to see that, you know, th- that human emotion have an impact on markets going forward. So, um, you know, I have been fortunate to, to have seen a number of cycles and a number of kind of crazy times and things that you'd never expect to happen in markets. Mm. You showed
1: me a really interesting graph. I think it was in Ned Davis's
2: chart. Yeah, that was one of my favourite charts, I suppose, showing the extremity of markets. Um, Ned Davis... Um, I think he only stopped writing his newsletter a year or two ago, but he would write a newsletter about the markets. And he had He had this table which showed, you know, it kind of showed the extremity of the time. It had um, on one side of the table, it had all the companies you could buy that would add up to um, a certain figure. And they were all the, you know, names that you would have heard of, things like Ford, Merrill Lynch, Caterpillar. I think Apple was there as well. Yeah, Apple was there, um, FedEx, J.P. Morgan. I mean, huge businesses today. Yeah. Um, and you could have bought all of those businesses combined, or you could have bought Cisco. And those businesses were trading on about fourteen or fifteen. You know, the the combined entity was trading on fourteen or fifteen times earnings mm. and about one time sales. Um, you compared that to C- Cisco trading on two hundred and thirteen times earnings or thirty six times sales. So, I mean, it was a, it was a very interesting time because um, you know, tech obviously had done very well. I, I'm not sure even to this day that Cisco has got back to, uh, it may, have, if it has, it would have only been in the last few years, got back to the, you know, the levels that it got to in the um, in the tech boom. But, you know, it was just another example that, um, you know, if you chase things and pay the wrong prices for businesses, then A, you can lose a lot of money or B, it's going to take you a lot of time to back to break even. So, yeah, that was certainly, um, you know, and, and, and when people talk about, you know, the tech boom over the last few years and the FANG stocks and, and you know, they get in the habit of comparing it and saying, look, it's like the, you know, the tech boom of 2000, um, you know, a lot of the FANG stocks were, um, you know, still trading on, you know, outside of Amazon, um, you know, these businesses are, you know, some of these businesses are on 20 or 30 times earnings. I mean, it's just not the, uh, it's not the extremity that we saw back in um, back in 2000.
1: Mm-hmm. It's very interesting because I think other two notable examples from that time that, I think a lot of people currently talk about there might be a bit of survivorship bias leaning towards talking about these two companies being Amazon and Microsoft. I think you would have had to wait a really long time. I think for Amazon, it's a different story compared to Microsoft. Um, But what were your thoughts about uh, on those two businesses um, around that time?
2: Well, I mean... Kind of from memory, you know, Amazon was, um, you know, certainly was the, you know, the poster child of the, of the internet at the time. But, you know, they didn't have AWS. You know, I don't think AWS would have even been invented back in the, um, back in the tech boom. I do remember there was a, there was a broker report on Amazon um, at the time. And from memory, they were just a bookseller. They hadn't morphed into being a seller of other people's products and selling all sorts of, you know, different things. They really were focused on books. And I remember reading a, uh, an analyst report out of the US, and um, you know they had compound growth at know, whatever the number was; it was a big number. And um, uh, you know by, by by the end of it, Amazon would, was going to be selling more books than every single bookstore in the world was currently mm-hmm. selling, which I thought was, you know, unless all of a sudden people decide that they need to own more books, which is unlikely, was probably um, was probably not going to happen. So I don't really recall too much about. Um, too much about Microsoft, Microsoft's obviously, you know, they did go, you know, for a long time, Microsoft certainly wasn't the darling that um, that people have perceived it to be in the last five years that they've really kind of changed their business have become a SaaS business and have got involved with Azure and the cloud and so forth. But yeah, I mean, these are, they were big businesses on big multiples and, um, mm. you know, with the benefit of hindsight, um, certainly uh, you know, for most of the businesses, they've, you know, you, you've lost money. If you've been able to hold on to Microsoft and um, Amazon, you've been amply rewarded. But I'm not sure owning Amazon at that point of time would have, you know, you would have been able to ascertain that, um, you know, it was going to get into cloud computing and it was going to be some mm. success it is today. So, mm. um, you know, it's always easier. Uh, no hindsight. hindsight.
1: Yeah, definitely. So uh, after your first decade, so you went to, sell side so hedge fund advisory um, so you spent a good decade there 2007 to 2018 and so when we chatted yesterday you talked about a lot of your work involving providing live model portfolios for clients um, that's that's very interesting um able to just provide our listeners with um an overview of, of what you did there
2: you know, I moved to the hedge fund advisory business in probably the early 2007. So, you know, the market was still very strong. There was a bonanza with M and A. You know, private equity was you know kind of bidding for everything. I mean, the beauty of the hedge fund advisory business and hedge funds generally is um, you know their, their, their toolkit seems to be or not seems to be their toolkit is certainly much broader than you know your typical long only investor. And some of what those, uh, some of what the accounts do, some of the larger hedge funds, they try to work out, I suppose, where there's pockets of alpha within the marketplace. So rather than paying a broker for, um, you know, all the analysts' research ideas that they've come up with and their research reports, they will ask their broker clients to effectively manage, um, you know, kind of model portfolios for them. And, um, you know, nowadays, those model portfolios are live, they're updated every day, And then they can monitor to see whether, you know, this person is good at picking stocks. Does he add value? You know, maybe there's some value in people that, you know, consistently wrong. And so rather than paying, you know, commission as, you know, that person wrote that report, we'll pay for that. They basically pay it on the profitability of, uh, you know, of that portfolio, model portfolio. And these are big companies like, you know, Marshall Waste is a multi-billion dollar asset manager out of the UK, Citadel, which... You know many of your listeners would have heard about it's a big hedge fund and so what you what you did as a, as a broker as well as your job of you know advising clients in how to manage their portfolios is you actually manage these model portfolios and they would put clients would have different constraints so they might say you know we want you to be you know within the bounds of plus or minus minus 20 percent net long or net short um you know you can't have more than x number of stocks but what that gave you an opportunity to do was really to to manage a portfolio, and you know the ideas you couldn't just kind of come up with ideas and have a buy recommendation; it wouldn't work. You just move on to something else because you know if you wanted to get paid commission, the portfolios had to had to perform. So I think that was a you know it was an interesting. You you ended up owning your you know I think you ended up owning your ideas and having more conviction you know, in terms of the, the ideas, because um, at the end of the day, you, you know, that was how, you know, in, in a large part, that was how those clients were paying you. So going through that, and I started that in probably about 2009, and I did that for the, the better part of the next 10 years, running model portfolios for some of the biggest hedge funds in the world, um, you know, it gave you an idea about how do you, how do you build a portfolio that um, is going to perform in different environments um, you know, how do you think about position sizing? How do you think about correlation? How do you think about uh, liquidity? Um, and I think the skill set of building and, and running a portfolio is is a different skill set than picking stocks. Um, it's not just like let's you know let's go and analyse eight companies and just go and buy all of them. I mean, obviously, different clients have different criteria and different tolerances for volatility. But, but, you know, that was a really good, you know, I found it a really useful process in terms of like, you know, getting better at, you know, how do you manage positions? What happens when they go down? Do you add to them? Do you cut them, et cetera? I mean, it's not the same as managing money. Um, you know, ultimately, you know, uh, you know it, at the end of the day, it's still a paper portfolio. And I think that, um, you know, that's the, one of the biggest challenges in investing is actually the psychological challenge, like when the market falls 15 or 20% or 30%, how are you going to emotionally cope with that? But certainly, uh, you know, it, it, you know, I learned a lot through that um, through that process.
1: Mm. It seems like it's probably the second best way to to actually um, operate a, a fund, essentially.
2: Well, I think it's um, you know the, the people that run these funds they tend to they've obviously got a lot of inputs. So some of them use them in different ways. So some of them will use you know more. Quantitative analysis. Um, there's a fund called Two Sigma that runs billions of dollars a quant fund, and they're looking for signals from people. So they want to know, uh, you know, I'm guessing all, all of a sudden everyone's moving into tech or everyone's selling interest rate sensitive stocks. And there's other funds that do more use it more for, you know, individual stock ideas and for stock picking. I um, mean, it's not a new concept. Um, hmm. The, uh, you know, I remember reading about uh, the first hedge fund. That was, uh, that was ever set up it was, it was actually run by an Australian guy who set up the first hedge fund, and this would have been probably 50 or 60 years ago. And, um, you know, he set up that process where instead of just asking brokers for their research, he actually tracked to see, you know, whose research was adding value um, mm. as opposed to who wasn't and rewarding, um, you know, kind of rewarding um, his brokers for, um, uh, you know, for, for ideas that actually added value.
1: Mm. Mm. It's very interesting because... I think, um, as you alluded to, um, there's a different kind of pressure in running this um, model portfolio for clients, and then you're operating a compared to operating a fund where you you have probably a lot more pressure, but it's a different kind of pressure.
2: Yeah, I think um, you know, I, I spend most of my career on the um, on the sell side, so advising um, you know advising clients long only funds mm-hmm. and and long only institutional accounts and hedge funds about you know, kind of managing portfolios and ideas for their portfolios, analyzing stocks, you know, and then I moved towards the, um, I moved to the buy side uh, about three years ago where you actually have to put that, you know, you kind of have to put that, um, you know, hopefully those learnings um, into practice. And, and mm. um, you know, I do think it's easier to sit on um, on the sell side and come up with ideas when, um, you know, th- there's no consequences really. Of I mean, you might come up with an idea and hopefully it works, but there's plenty of ideas that, um uh, that don't work. And if you don't have skin in the game, you know, they probably hurt less when when they're wrong.
1: Yeah, continuing on the topic of pressure, I think during that time, um, we can't not talk about the great financial crisis. So you talked about how history often doesn't repeat itself but often rhymes, as quoted by Mark Twain. Um, you also read House of Morgan, which also covered the 1920s and the Great Depression. And that kind of reflects that quote by Mark
2: Twain. What was going through your mind during the GFC? It's a great quote that um, history rhymes. It's never, you know, it's never the same, but, um, you know, you can certainly take lessons out of the markets and out of history. And, you know, over the last two decades, I've spent, you know, a reasonable amount of time studying the history of markets and, you know, the great depression and the nifty 50 and um to kind of understand that you know markets you know really teaches you that markets do some strange things from um from time to time but i think we were pretty fortunate that um uh you know i remember at the time i was reading um uh you know i was reading about an investor or a trader i should say called jesse livermore i just happened to be reading about um you know what he was talking about in the i think it was the 1907 crash you know, he was just talking about the credit markets had completely clamped up and the markets just continued to, to rally. And it took, you know, some time for the market to work out that there was, um, there was a real problem that was happening. And, um, you know, in late 2007, that's exactly um, what happened was the, the credit markets completely shut. You know, in the stock market, which it has a habit of doing, that ignores it for um, ignores it for some time. So, you know, if you kind of look back, in, in, you know, at the history of the global financial crisis, Northern Rock, uh, which was uh, a mortgage lender, one of the big mortgage lenders in the UK, basically had to get government support. It needed to get bailed out. They couldn't access the credit markets, and the stock market probably went on for the next month to hit, you know, to continue to hit record highs until it um, mm-hmm. until it all came. Undone, and at the time I was also reading a book called *The House of Morgan*, which was about the history of J.P. Morgan, and there was a few chapters in there. Uh, from memory, one of them was called *The, the, um, called the Depression*, and, and it was just uncanny the type of things that you know that I was seeing that were, were in that book. And that book was written; it was a book by Ron Chernow. It was written in, I think, 1990, so it was written, you know, obviously before the financial crisis. And he was talking about what created. Uh, the problems in the in the 1920s and you'd had this boom period it had easy credit interest rates were almost zero there was massive m a going on which is exactly what happened in late 2007 and there was um, investment banks in the 1920s that were packaging up bonds from um, I think from places like Portugal and they were selling them through their you know affiliates to, to people that had no idea what they were buying and I was reading this thinking wow like you know, this could be exactly written exactly, you know, what we're seeing right now where the investment banks have packaged up their, um, you know, subprime debt and sending, mm-hmm. selling it to people that had no idea. Interest rates were very low. There was an M&A bonanza. And mm-hmm. at the time, there was, you know, banks were getting in trouble. And, you know, so I, I think I, it was fortunate that, um, you know, I just happened to be kind of getting into, you know, th- that part of market history. So um, I was on the hedge fund advisory desk and I think, you know, I don't think we... Put out a recommendation for, um, you know, for, for for quite a while we were pretty we were pretty bearish, you know. In, in some part, I think that's luck, but um, you know, certainly, um, you know, and I and I never expected it was going to be as bad as what it was. But um, you know, I think by studying history, you know, you can kind of see those parallels. And and while we're not really that focused on macro, you know, I certainly keep an, an eye on it. That um, you know, when there's what I would say you know, what look to be asymmetric uh, type situations in markets, um, you know, it's it, it's time for caution.
1: I think the saying where people kind of learn the most when you get thrown into the deep end, um, I think that that decade of experience would have set you up very well um, for your foray into into the buy side, which happened in, in 2018 when you opened up um, your first small caps fund that um, has a maximum Market cap of five hundred million dollars.
2: I suppose the concern I had at the time, you know, when in, in the back of your mind, you're always thinking, well, you think you've got a, you know, an okay handle on markets. You've been through a few cycles, but you know, how, how are you gonna, how are you gonna cope when, um, you know, there's there's um, kind of volatility and I think we're all driven by emotion, which emotion overrules, unfortunately, it overrules our rational side. So it was interesting timing because I started running Molus Australia had a small cap portfolio uh, that had been running probably for a couple of years, two or three years. And um, and I had the opportunity to kind of move across and become the portfolio manager of that portfolio. And in about the first two seconds of um, sitting in the chair, the S&P 500 uh, collapsed about 20%, uh, which I think was actually the worst December, you know, in about a hundred years. So I started in October and the market got absolutely, you know, kind of absolutely thumped. So that's an interesting kind of time to, you know, when, when you're managing money is, you know, you are going to be tested by markets. Um, markets, unfortunately, while over the very long term, you know, they, they tend to go, you know, up, up and to the right in the intervening periods, you can get, you know, a, a significant amount of volatility. So how do you, how do you kind of manage the emotional side of, inve- you know, of investing? I think some, um, I think it's pretty, pretty important. And then, you know, that was 2018. And then, you know, fast forward to 2020, um, and we had COVID, um, you know, I'm sure that those two events in, st- in a statistical sense would be, you know, supposed to happen probably one in every 10,000 years or something st- stupid. So, um, you know, it's been a pretty, um, it's been a pr- pretty volatile um, last couple of years, but I think it's never easy in markets. Um, you know, you can look back and, you know, while you say markets have done 10% over the long term, um, you know, you've had to a fair bit of um, volatility in the intervening period,
1: and you also recently, I think, last year in August, you opened your opportunities fund, um, which is index and also market cap agnostic.
2: The larger fund that we run, which is uh, has now got about six hundred million in it, uh, the mandate, uh, which is part of a SIV program, is um, you know it, it's a little bit restricted. Uh, we can't invest, uh, you know, when, when we start in any stock above five hundred million dollars and you know, there's a, there's a finite number, I think, of really high quality businesses that fit, into, that fit into that category. So, you know, we thought there was an opportunity to build a new portfolio or a new product where we could invest in small companies, and I suppose use the the you know IP or intellectual property that we've developed in those smaller companies. But we can also complement that um, with owning some some larger companies in Australia and just cherry picking. What we think are the best, uh, the best businesses that we think you know over the long term are going to deliver attractive returns, and those businesses are going to be probably less volatile than some of the um, some of the smaller cap stocks. But um, you know, we did the numbers, uh, we did a bit of research into it, and we found that um, if you look at the ASX 50, so the top 50 stocks in Australia over the last 10 or 20 years, the chances of, of one of those stocks doubling. Um, in a year, there's, or there's about th- 3% of, 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 you know, if you bought a basket of those stocks over the last, you know, over the last 20 years, you, the, the 3% of those stocks will have doubled. And that makes sense because, um, you know, the ASX 200, it, it's kind of, or ASX 50, it's an interesting index. It's very highly weighted to uh, resources and to banks um, and banks and financials. Financials probably make up about 30% of the index, Mm-hmm. Uh, resources probably make up 20, so you've got 50% of your index exposure in those two sectors. Um, interestingly, tech is probably 4% um, of the um, of the market, and you kind of contrast that to say the US market, the S and P 500, where tech would be 30% of their index. You know, resources are probably you know between five and you know probably five percent, and financials are probably. I'm guessing here 10 or 15 percent. So the Australian market is far, far less diversified, far less exposure to um, to technology. And so um, you know, you think about our banks and our resources. You know, these are big businesses. As you get larger, you start to hit you know the the law of large numbers. It's much harder to to double what, you know if you if you if you're a big business. Whereas if you can go down into the smaller end of the market, and we looked at the market cap range of 200 to 400 million, if you invest in that sector of the market, you've got about a 15% chance. 15% of those stocks will double over any one year period. So what we try to do with this portfolio is we try to take advantage of that. So we go and cherry pick what we think are the best businesses. We don't have to, if we don't like resources or banks, you know, we don't have to, you know, go and invest in those. We're really looking for very, very high quality businesses. Um, And then we're looking to you know, complement the portfolio with some smaller businesses, which we think have got very long runways for growth. Um, that could deliver, you know, those kind of hundred percent plus type returns. So that that was the thinking about, um, you know, kind of building this portfolio. The bigger stocks give you a ballast. The smaller names give you the ability to, you know, to to hopefully make, you know, some significant gains. Overall, the overall result being that, um, you know, over the medium to longer term, I think the portfolio will outperform, uh, you know, a a broader market index.
1: Mm. I think I really love this approach of where you're using the small cap funds. It's essentially like an academy in a sports team where you're breeding, you're trying to find the next superstars, the youngsters, and then once you've monitored them over Over a period of time, then you kind of get more conviction of who's going to become an absolute superstar in the team, and then you essentially pick those for your opportunities funds. If that's, if
2: I'm correct in saying that, yeah, that's a great. I hadn't thought I hadn't thought about that analogy before, but that's a great analogy to think about. um, You know, you're picking your you know your younger players your rookie players that are going, on, yeah. that are going to go on and um, and certainly absolutely you know that's what we're trying to trying to achieve but we're not waiting for those in the opportunities fund we're not waiting for those businesses to become bigger businesses like we can own them um, in the fund at the moment and the fund's uh, just over 100 million dollars so so we can actually it's got the capacity for these businesses and and they have actually made a real uh, you know a, a real impact um, i was looking at the numbers on the opportunities fund the other day. And I think of the seven largest contributors to performance over the first year, seven of them, sorry, of the seven, six of them more than doubled, Um, you know, and they were those smaller names and a few of them had some, you know, interesting characteristics, which, you know, we think means that they can go on and, you know, be much bigger businesses. And those businesses tend to be, you know, they tend to be less, probably less well followed. They're smaller, so they don't have as much, you know, as many people following them, they're probably not in any indexes. But the characteristics that make these businesses great, whether you're a hundred million dollar business or a two hundred million dollar business, um, you know, the things that we're looking for in, in those businesses are no different to the, um, to the bigger businesses. Obviously, you know, in many cases, the bigger businesses have been around longer. They may have been stress tested by different, you know, by uh, you know more challenging cycles. Um, but you know we look you know we really are looking for the um, uh, for the same characteristics and we're hoping that um, you know and and our style of investing is to try and generate our returns out of the underlying businesses that we own Um, Mm -hmm. so we're not trying to buy you know business on 10 times and sell it on 12 times because that's where the index is on we're trying to find businesses um, you know that can grow um, and have got long long runways of growth so yeah I like the um uh, I like the analogy.
1: So we chatted a little about uh, valuation and trying to find great businesses, they often don't come cheap. Um, but I think one insight that really resonated with me and um, was your focus uh, on the destination um, when you think about valuation. Could you unpack this um, more for our listeners?
2: I think when I started, like a lot of um, investors, uh, you know, and what you're taught in, you know, maybe in business school is, you know, like you're very focused on on, on numbers and, and building valuation and, you know, kind of simple heuristics, if you like. So buy a stock on a PE, a stock on a PE of 10's cheaper than a stock on a PE of 20 or 30. You know, I kind of, uh, over the years I've morphed where, where you know, I probably erred on the side of, you know, wanting to buy things on low you know, on low PE multiples, to now at the point where I recognise that, you know, you can have businesses on high PE multiples, you know, that can still be cheap. One of the, um, you know, one of my favourite investors is a guy called Nick Sleep, um, and he wrote about, and it's an extre- it's a very extreme example, but he wrote about Walmart, and he said in 1972, uh, Walmart, you could have paid 150 times the um, the prevailing. Uh, share price at the time, which would have been a PE of 1,500%, you still would have earned a 10% return, um, you know, until, you know, holding that until, you know, I think he wrote it maybe three or four years ago, maybe a bit longer, maybe five years ago. So, so imagine, you know, paying a PE multiple of 1,500 times. um, And he then said, if you know, even 10 years later, you could have paid a PE multiple of 200 times. Um, and, And so I suppose that, you know, what does that tell you? It tells you that, um, you know, a simple uh, PE metric, you know, at times can be misleading. And, you know, as humans, we love to simplify things and, you know, dumb it down and put one, you know, I read a thing from a guy from um, the Santa Fe Institute and he said humans love, like they love just like single numbers and, you know, if it's if it's on a PE of 15, it's okay. If it's 25, it's expensive. If it's 10, it's cheap. Um, and he made the point, he said, well, you wouldn't go and fly your plane with one metric right that you're relying on and i think as investors it's important to to you know kind of not get too caught up in that whole oh you know what's the pe what's the evd but uh and so really you know what we're thinking about is and 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 you kind of mentioned is we're thinking about like where is the destination for this business so if we think the business is you know we kind of look out three to five years and we're looking at like how big could this business be what are the competitive advantages that this business has that's going to allow it to to grow and become a much bigger business. Um, And then you know provided the the PE multiple doesn't, you know, doesn't get extreme. And when I say that, I, I really mean provided we're not provided we still think the returns that we're going to generate from paying the price today by the time it gets to the our estimate of the destination, if those returns still remain attractive you know we're going to continue to hold um, hold on to the business and we're going to tolerate a level of short-term what I would refer to as short-term overvaluation if it gets extreme um, you know we're probably going to divest I mean a good example of that was um, you know we were an investor in Australian ethical funds which is a fund manager we thought it was a great business uh, we had a you know, I, I suppose a, a somewhat differentiated view, or it's now a consensus view on, um, you know, ethical investing was was at an inflection point and was going to take off. We liked the business; it, it had some great characteristics. It, it had a scale economic shared model where they shared their fees as they grew. They shared their fees um, with their customers. Most businesses, as a generalization, um, you know, when they can save money, they tend to try and keep it. And they gave a lot of money to charity. And you know, we think investing in general, if you're gonna buy businesses, they have to win in the ecosystem over the long term. Um, so we bought that and we owned the business stock and the stock did very well. And there was, I think there was a lot of inflows going into ESG funds and, you know, the stock probably got into some ESG indexes and index funds don't care about what price they pay. No price is too high for an index fund to pay for a stock. If it's in the index and it's on pick a number, going to pay it it's the same when they're going out like no 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 multiples too low for an index fund to sell because you know if it's if if it's out of the index they've got to sell it regardless if it's in the index they've got to buy it and if a lot of money is going into that you know that type of strategy then um, you can get extreme results so i think the stock more recently traded on a pe of 160 times now most asset managers trade on pe's of 10 to 25 times you know, we kind of got to the point where we, you know, we think it's a great business. We think it's going to continue to grow, but it just got hard to justify. Um, you know, we, we think owning it here and the type of growth rate, it's just the risk and reward wasn't there. So uh, we ended up, you know, kind of selling our position in that. But, you know, as a generalization, we, we tend to try to hold on to these businesses provided that the longer term destination is intact. And remember, one of another saying I like is good things happen to good businesses. And, you know, in my career investing, I, I've seen that, um, you know, kind of so many times that the business does something, um, you know, and, you know, they buy a business that's highly accretive or they go past an inflection point or, you know, they win some new customers. Um, and the challenge is with great businesses is it's very hard psychologically, and even Buffett would say this himself, if you've sold, if you bought a stock at a dollar and it goes to $2 and you sell it and you think you're a hero, um, and then it trades up at three dollars. It's very hard psychologically to uh, to buy back in, probably because um, you don't like to admit that you made a mistake in the first place by selling it. So um, yeah, it's a generalisation. We, we we're very focused on the destination. Mm-hmm. Uh, notwithstanding, we understand that um, you know there's a whole heap of potential destinations, um, and it's kind of based on a probabilities. But you know, if we think the destination's intact, um, you know, and, and and this is a kind of philosophy. Um, you know, Nick Sleep, uh, you know, talks a lot about is that, um, you know, stick with it. And as you know, people want to see active behaviour, but you know, the best, if you think about investing in the last, I mean, even the last 10 or 20 years, the best thing that you could have done would just be buy Facebook, buy Google, buy Amazon and do nothing else. Right. Mm. Um, Don't trade them around, don't sell them, just own them. So um, yeah, that's a, that's certainly one of our philosophies.
1: Mm. I wanted to touch upon your comment about working out the risk-reward payoff because I guess talking, talking about these companies, um, I think there's a lot of dialogue um, about the, the pricey valuations and, and the highs that these companies are going through. What are a few ways to, that you use to work out that risk-reward payoff? Do you kind of back it back it out? Like you do a reverse a bit of reverse engineering?
2: Um, I mean, the way we tend to think about it is, um, is, you know, we think about it in in each of the individual businesses that we own. So, uh, you know, if I think about, you know, say a business we own is, is um, and we've owned it for the last three years is a business called John's Lean. Um, stock's probably gone up three or four times since we've owned it. And so if you look at that business today and you look at the multiple that it trades on, it's probably expensive. Well, it's not probably on a, on, on a, on, on a short-term PE multiple, optically, the business looks expensive. Um, mm. That's an example of good things happening to good businesses. Um, recently, they bought a um, they bought a business in the US which was highly accretive and gives them a, a lead kind of into that market. But if we think about that business, we think about, you know, at the moment they do repair work for insurers in Australia. They've just moved into the strata business, so they've been buying up kind of strata operators and they've made their first acquisition at the end of last year into the US. And so if we think about that business, we think about, well, where could that business be? What are the things that make it competitive? You know, are they sustainable? Why why is it winning? Can it do what it's done in Australia, you know, in the US? And it's not assured, but we think there's a high probability it will be successful. You know, if we think about some of these businesses and I think of, you know, some of the numbers that, that we, the names we own, you know, we like businesses where they have this, you know, and this tends to happen a little bit more with smaller businesses, is they have this kind of tangential opportunity where they can um, incubate and cultivate a business that might be able to be the same size as their existing business within five years. So we love those opportunities where you've got a great management team, they've got a track record of success. And so, you know, we'd look at that and we'd think, okay, well, maybe we're paying, I don't know, whatever the multiple is, 20 times for that business today. We think in five years' time, they can have another business that could be exactly the same size as their existing business. And we think, you know, for various reasons about, you know, their ability to deploy capital, that we think the business can compound at 15%, the underlying business could do, you know, 10 or 15%. If it was a retailer, we might be looking at how many stores have they got now, how many stores do we think they've got in the future, you know, those type of things. And we get to, you know, what where we think the, des- the destination is. We try not to be aggressive in you know we're not we don't sit there and say we're going to buy the stock on a pe today of 15 and we think in five years it'll be on 20 times we're more than likely to go we think it's on 15 maybe it can hold it you know maybe it's mm. 12 but the power of compounding is so extreme that um you know if you've got a business that can grow at high rates of return then you know what looks to be an optically high pe ratio in the short term is um you know it, when you look back in you know Five or ten years is, um, you know, it's gonna it's gonna be cheap. So that's how I think that's how we try to frame the frame the destination. If it was a retailer, we'd you know I think our our point our starting point would be how big is it now? What could it be? You know, it's 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 different for you know every every business. But we tend to focus on businesses where we think we can underwrite the future. So we're not, you know, I I never say never on anything, but we're not really into commodity companies. We're not into biotech Mm. because they tend to be too binomial. We're trying to be in businesses where we think we can underwrite where the business is going to be and have confidence because of the competitive advantages that we understand about that business, be it. And a lot of those will be qualitative culture, people, um, you know, all of those type of things. I hope that kind of answers the question.
1: Yeah, it does. Definitely does. So I just wanted to take a step back. Um, so you spent a lot of time reading. You have a voracious appetite for books. Yeah, evidently very busy being a portfolio manager. Is there anything outside of work that kind of takes your mind off
2: investing? I do like to. Um, I, I you know, I spend my spare time. Um, and, and my hobby, you know, my hobby is, you know, it's kind of like it, like I, it is reading. Like I enjoy <laughs> reading, and I read broadly, so I I tend to read about, you know, more, you know, and I'll go down different rabbit holes about what I might be interested in at the time. So, I, I, you know, over the last 10 year, years, I've spent a lot of time reading about great businesses, yeah, but I read, you know, I've been reading about the Pentagon and Skunk Works and, you know, I mean, crazy things like honeybees and biomimicry and, you know, all sorts of stuff. So I, I do spend a lot of time uh, reading and, I, I, you know, I love it when, you know, an investor that I look up to might, you know, say, I've just read this book, it's great. And so, you know, I'll, I'll tend to, you know, buy the book and, you know, spend a lot of time reading. I do spend a lot of time, uh, you know, I try to spend a lot of time uh, with my kids and, and with my family and, um, you know, I, I, I really value that. I have been trying to, you know, kind of get more into my fitness, which I think, um, you know, it, it is important. Um, you know, it's, it's kind of COVID's made it a little bit challenging. I've probably, uh, I've probably watched a lot of Netflix so their numbers will probably be pretty good. And, yeah. um, you know, I mean, 2022, I think for me, is I need, probably, you know, I probably need to get more. If you ask my partners, you'd say you need to get more, a little bit more balance um, mm. balance in your life. So I, I love the markets. Um, you know, I really enjoy learning. I love reading. You know, I think, you know, to be successful, that's, you know, that's kind of, you got to keep learning. And, you know, there's just so much we don't know.
0: So
1: on the topic of reading, um, so you spend, uh, I think, and you still do until this day. Um, you studied the great investors. And I think myself and the investing community have also come across you know, the greats as well. But you, you really take um, that extra leap and extra step in covering um, around 59 great investors to date on your website, uh, which is phenomenal. And they all have different investing trade styles. Um, you said a couple of them uh, are more macro-focused, some uh, trading-focused, and some are just purely long-only. Having covered so many great investors, which of these great investors um, really resonated with you? Well,
2: I think all, all, in all of the, the, you know, and these investors are, have got track records of success. And so, you know, for me, it's like trying to unpack, like, what are the characteristics? What are the qualities of those investors like what do they do that has um, that has made them successful? So um, you know, while nowadays I probably spend less time studying, you know, studying those, you know, studying them. I you know I still follow like I like I love you know listening what Stanley Druckenmiller is you know how he's thinking about the world. Um, you know, so you know I I, I don't follow you know I probably follow I'm, I'm spend more of my time now studying other things outside of, um, outside of the great investors, but I definitely follow and read all of their letters. Um, so, uh, you know, and then, uh, you know, in time, you come across new investors that, uh, you know, teach you things that, um, you know, you hadn't thought about. So whether it was, you know, I mentioned Nick Sleep and, you know, the way he looked at the world, whether it was um, marathon asset management and how they think about the capital cycle and all investors have different, you know, they all have different styles. Like no, there's no, you know, I don't think there's any investors, two investors that are alike. But what I would say is that, um, you know, they, they all have these, you know, the, you can find these common characteristics. So, um, you know, I've studied Jim Simons, the, who's run um, Renaissance Technologies, which is probably the most successful fund there's ever been. I think his returns were... I don't know, 40% a year or 45% a year, something ridiculous over you know, 25 years. He's kind of somewhat constrained in the amount of capital uh, that they can run. But he was a code cracker uh, for the US government. And I don't think he started his fund until he was about 46. Um, Ed Thorpe's another guy that was an MIT professor, um, wrote a book called Beat the Dealer, How to How to Win in Blackjack. Um, and then you have, you know, so you have quant, you know, I put them into quant category. Then you have traders like You know Soros and Drucker Miller who worked for him, and Paul Tudor Jones, and then probably the guys that you know resonate with me more. You know the Buffets, Munger, um, Ackray, Terry Smith. I mean, these are investors that the average investor can mimic their investing style and 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 can execute their investing style. I don't think anyone. You know, I think it's a rare person that can do what Drucker Miller or George or George Soros does. Um, and certainly um, probably rarer still, I mean, definitely rarer still that, um, you know, that you can do what Jim Simons um, or, you know, Ed, or Ed Thorpe did. I mean, you know, those guys are mathematical, mathematical geniuses. So, um, you know, that, maybe that's why I've ended up, you know, with, you know, the, the latter guy in terms of, you know, for the average investor, um, you can, you know, you can find great businesses, high quality businesses, you can look for those characteristics it's, it's going to be easier for, you know, you don't have to be a, you know, a genius to, to be that type of investor. But notwithstanding that, if, if you look at investors generally and, um, you know, on the website, there's, um, you know, there's a, about 100 tutorials and all, all they simply are is, um, you know, subjects with quotes from the great investors. And, and whether, you know, you're looking at, um, you know, preserving capital or being humble or continuous learning and evolving, those quotes aren't for a particular type of investor. They're for all of those investors. So whether you're a quant, whether you're a trader, you know, things like, you know, as I say, preserving capital, being humble, uh, being open-minded, you know, being curious, having an edge, whether you're trading, whether you're a long-term investor, as an investor, you have to have an edge. You have to understand what you're invested in. Um, you have to, you know, you have to do things where you've got, as Buffett would call it, your circle of competence. You can't get emotional. Um, you can't follow the crowd. You've got to understand, you know, I think you've got to understand the markets. You've got to understand yourself. You have to work hard because the people that you're competing against, uh, you know, they, you know, they love it. And if you, you know, obviously if someone loves something, they're going to be, you know, if you love playing tennis, you're going to be better at someone that doesn't like it. So the thing I've got out of studying those individuals is that there are these common characteristics that, that they uh, that they portray. And then it's interesting when you go and then study great businesses, you, you suddenly find like, wow, there's, you know, all these characteristics of great CEOs and great businesses as well. So, um, yeah, I think, and, you know, if I look at any of the investors, I've learned, you know, I wouldn't say there's an investor I haven't learned something from. You know, maybe it's a little, you know, kind of mental model about, you know, a situation in markets or how non-linearity works or how, this you know, from marathon, it would be how the supply cycle works or... Uh, You know, Nick Sleep was a big proponent of scale economic shared. Yeah. So, you know, I think you can you can learn from, um, you know, and the great thing, I mean, Buffett and Munger, I think, are you know, probably the two greatest investors over the last couple of hundred years. And, you know, what's so great about them is they just share everything. They, you know, they Mm. share their knowledge. It's, you know, you can read all the Berkshire letters. And a couple of years ago, they put all, all of the meetings from Berkshire are now online with transcripts. I mean, there is those two guys have seen everything. I mean, they've been through every market cycle. They've been pitched every investment, you know, under the sun. Uh, they've managed businesses. They've owned businesses. Um, you know, there's just so much, uh, so much you can learn from, you know, all different types of, um, you know, of people. But you know, you've you've got to put the working.
1: The first half of any game is always a teaser. This weekend, we'll be releasing the second half of the interview. If you'd like to watch the episode in full right now, head to the Rask YouTube channel. The link is in the show notes.
0: For more than a decade, I've been hunting for the best investors and their methods, strategies, and tools for investing. After years in the industry, countless books, a few degrees, and 1,000 podcasts and live shows, I've rolled this accumulated knowledge into something called Rask Invest. If you've ever heard me talk about a core in a satellite to join one of our live platform walkthroughs or book a call with us. You can also view the Raskinvest PDS and TMD and get invested with me.